Well, welcome everyone. Let me have your attention for the next three hours and we'll be in good shape here. So we well, do want to welcome you. Thank you for those of you who come back tonight for this. How many of you came last week? Just raise your hand real quick. Okay. Well, thank you for your bravery. How many of you here for the first time? First time tonight. Well, thank you for coming. That is great. We're happy to have you here. My name is Frank Loria. Um, have the joy of hosting the Alpha course. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this is the 38th time we've done Alpha here at Lakeview. Started back in 2001. I am uh, I'm one of the elders here at Lakeview, but I own a business just across the canal here. Um, been in the employment business for 42 years. And uh, the great thing about being in the employment business is it's your job to help other people get a job. And uh, so I've, I don't know if I've ever really had a job, but my job has been helping other people get a job. So, um, But just a quick review for those of you who were not here last week. Um, last week's topic was is there more to life than this? And we talked about the fact that everybody lives in faith. There's not a person that's ever drawn breath that does not live virtually every moment of their day in faith. And that we tend to think of faith as a religious thing, but faith is something, like I said, we practice every day. You go to a doctor in faith. You eat the food you're eating now in faith. You did not meet the chef. Uh, you drove here in this weather tonight in faith. You, you fly in faith. You know, there's 150,000 people in the world that got up this morning, took their head off the pillow, that are not making it back to their pillow tonight. Over 7,700 in the United States, on average, will not see the end of the day. We don't know life, how long it is. We have no idea. So we live in faith, every one of us. You know, I mentioned that I ask a question at the beginning of Alpha. So you were here last week, you know this. I asked the question, how many of you believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever? <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, in a room that typically has, matter of fact, I'll show you, this is an Alpha room before COVID. That's how many people we'd have in here. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? So that's about 200 people. And I'll ask those people, those people actually, this is not, this is not, they're not joining the Mickey Mouse Club. They, um, this is called assuming the alpha position because it would be so loud you couldn't hear anyone speak. Now you have to assume the alpha position because we're so far away from one another you can't hear what anybody's saying. So, but that's what, that's what, and I'll ask those 200 people. Some of you, uh, Anthony, you see Ferd, right? Yeah. See Ferd right there? Um, lots of people that we love. Um, some are not with us anymore, but... Um, so I'll ask that question. How many believe there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat? I'll ask that question. Almost every hand in the room goes up. And I ask, I kind of challenge them as to why they believe that. And why we would spend so much time critically researching things that, that last for just a short period of time. Where we're going to vacation for two weeks will take us a year to figure that out. You know, anybody in fantasy football leagues, you know, okay, how long will you spend just going over and over who you should draft and who this, some of you are in several fantasy football leagues and just pouring over that. We talked last week about, God forbid you getting the wrong cell phone policy because I mean, it'll just be a hell phone policy if you just get stuck in that forever. So, but, but we, we spend so little time thinking about that, which is going to last, or we believe is going to last forever. And I, and I, I introduced to you last week that the dash, 
which is our physical life, and the line, which is what's on the other side of our last heartbeat. And every one of us is somewhere on this continuum of, of physical life. But what everyone tells me is they believe there's something on the other side of their physical life that's going to last a whole lot longer than physical life. And none of us really know how long our physical lives are going to last, do we? We really don't. We live in faith. But if we believe that there's something that's going to last forever, wouldn't it make sense? And I believe you would agree. It would make sense to say, well, what is on the other side of my last heartbeat? How do I know where I'm going to be on the other side of my last heartbeat? It's faith. And so tonight when we talk about who is Jesus, that's an interesting question. But the question is, do we really know who he is? See, because every, every one of us has a worldview. Every one of us believes something. If you believe there's nothing on the other side of your last heartbeat, you're just food for the worms, that's a faith position. If you believe you just, well, I, I, just, I'm, I hope I die on a good day, I hope I've been good enough that God will accept me, that's a faith position. But what if... A person by the name of Jesus shows up and claims to have answers to what's in, in, the, in, our, in our physical life and what's on the other side of our last heartbeat. Is there anything to support who he is and what he says? So who is Jesus? Now, for Americans, that may seem like a really dumb question. You grew up going to a parochial school. You grew up going to church. Who doesn't know who Jesus is? Well, I didn't go to a parochial school, but I did go to church on most Sundays. And uh, the ones that my mother dragged me to is the ones I went to. But, but I, believed, and I, that's, I believed in a Jesus that didn't exist. I created a fictitious character named Jesus that was not to be found in the pages of the Bible at all. But when I was introduced to the, Bible, to the Jesus of the Bible and history, well, uh, it destroyed the the Jesus that I had created out of my own sincerity, out of my own personal, actually my own personal stereotyping conveniency because I needed to have a God who was convenient to me, one that I could understand. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. But when I became a follower of Jesus Christ some 45 years ago, he changed my life completely. My life has never been the same since that moment. Now, I'm not asking you to believe that. I'm just, or, or, or do what Frank says he's experienced. But I'm just telling you, that is what happened to my life. But it was interesting because it was then, after I said, if you want this mess, you can have it. And when I woke up the next morning different, I, I didn't know anything. I, I still hadn't read a Bible. I just ran, ran off to get a Bible and started reading it because I'd never read it. Um, and so then I started looking to see, is there any reason or is it reasonable to believe what I now believe? Is there any evidence to support what I say I now believe? Where's the evidence? Um, well, if in your manual's time, if you want to just turn to page 12, we're going to spend some time in our... In our manuals, we'll be in and out of the manual. But on page 12, who is Jesus? Well, the first thing we want to see is that Jesus, a guy named Jesus of Nazareth, actually did exist. There's not a critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian that believes the Jesus of the Bible was a fable. 
If so, think about this. If Jesus is a fable, how can we believe anything about any figure of ancient history? Caesar? Should we believe Caesar? We've got some writings. Should we believe Plato or Socrates or any figures of ancient history? Is there less supporting evidence for the person of Jesus than there is for Caesar or any other um, historic celebrities? Um, well, it's interesting because we have accounts outside of the Bible, historical accounts outside of the Bible that speak of a historic person who lived in the first century who was Jesus of Nazareth. You know, we have uh, Josephus, some have heard of Josephus, or Suetonius was another Roman historian, or Pliny was another historian. These were not uh, protagonists. They were not for necessarily Christianity, but they wrote of Jesus. They, they were not cancel culture. They did not just write him out of history because they didn't believe in him. And then we have disciples. I'm not talking about the apostles, but other disciples that, that wrote of the person of Jesus living. And so we have tremendous amount of support. Um, one who's considered the, the, maybe the most famous Ro uh, Roman historian is a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus. And this is what Tacitus wrote in his Annals of Rome. This is a piece of it. He said, Consequently, to get rid of the report that he had burned Rome, that Nero had burned Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, we know that biblically. At the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, we know that biblically. Now, Tacitus is not one of the writers of the Bible. He's a Roman historian who bent his knee to Caesar, not to Jesus. And so we see here, even, even antagonists of the Christian faith corroborate that a man named Jesus walked the earth teaching, influencing men and women across the, the civilized world at that time. But, but here's a question. What, what about the Bible? How do we know the New Testament hasn't been changed over the years? I mean, how do we know that, that this book that many of you got last week, and we want you to have one if you did not get one, we're happy to give this to you. How do we know that this book, what we're holding in our hands here, is actually what was being held in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, in the 4th century. How do, how do we know that? Is what they wrote then what we read today? So I want you to do this. I want you to just grab a pen if you don't have one. And uh, I think you should have one at your place setting. Uh, I want you to write down these two words. Textual, okay, T-E-X-T-U-A-L. Criticism. Okay, now, now this is not, I'm not talking about being a critical texter, okay, which is the 21st century thinking of this. Textual criticism. All right? Now, what, what is textual criticism? It is the science that is used to determine the truth or the untruth, the validity or the invalidity of a text. Now, there are three parts to the bibliographical text, and I want to show you this right now. So, the bibliographical test is... is found within the science of textual criticism. And the bibliographical test 
has three parts. All right? Now, just write this down with him. The quantity of the manuscripts is one of the tests within textual criticism. The quantity of the manuscripts. How many do we have today? Okay. How many copies do we have today? For the most part, the original autographs have all disintegrated. We don't have them. Air took care of them, or water took care of them, or fire took care of them. We also have the quality of the manuscripts, or the consistency. Now look, the quality doesn't mean the shape that it's in. The consistency means this, pardon me, the consistency means this. When you look at one manuscript and you hold it up against another manuscript and another manuscript and another manuscript, are they agreeing with one another or are they contradicting one another? So of the manuscripts that we have, any ancient manuscript, do they conflict or do they complement? you understand that? So quantity, how many? Consistency, complementary. And then the third test in the bibliographical test, it's a time span. How much time is there between the original writing and when we see the first copy? Okay, so if somebody writes it in 500 BC, we may not see the first copy until 400 AD. We may see centuries-long time spans. Right, so that's basically textual criticism and how the validity or the invalidity of ancient manuscripts are judged. Now, let's just go to Herodotus here. Herodotus was a Greek historian, wrote of the Greco-Persian Wars. He wrote between 488 and 428 BC. The earliest copy we have is 8980 AD, not 80. AD 900. We have a time lapse here of 1300 years from when Herodotus wrote it, and we get the first copy. 1,300 years. Okay, and we have, how many of those copies do we have? We still have 117 copies of Herodotus. Um, Thucydides was another Greek historian, wrote about the Peloponnesian Wars. He wrote between 460 and 400. Earliest copy we have is 8,900. Time lapse, 1,350 years. We've got 104 copies of Thucydides' writings. I'm not picking the, the ones that are farthest apart. I mean, this is what we've got in terms of ancient history. Livy was a Roman historian. We wrote the history of Rome, 559 BC to AD 17, early, earliest copies, 400 time lapse, for about 400 years, and we have 169 copies of that. Okay, so is this exciting? Is this helping you stay awake? Okay, I mean, I'd have been asleep already if I were you, so... Um, so, so we see this here, so we look at all these, but let's look here for a moment at the New Testament. The New Testament, which is the testimony of Jesus and the history of the church, was written between, between AD 40 and AD 100. We have partial manuscripts at 130, we have full manuscripts at 350, you see we have, a, we have time lapses between 40 and 300 years, how many manuscripts do, do we have? How many existing handwritten, not Xerox copies, not off the printer, handwritten manuscripts do we have? We've got 23, almost 24,000 manuscripts. Now think about this. Quantity of the manuscripts. You see the time span here. And the accuracy is 99.5%. 
And the place where we have any discrepancy is really more of a grammar or maybe a punctuation, something like that. And so we have, among those 24,000 documents, virtually the same document. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's the Word of God. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue that this is God-breathed. I, I do believe that. But what I'm saying is, if you and I are going to read Herodotus or Thucydides or Caesar or Aristotle or Socrates, and I can't wait to go home tonight to do that, um, <laughs> if you're going to put any credence into that at all, you've got to hold the New Testament, at least the New Testament. We'll talk about the Old Testament later. But you've got to put at least the New Testament in a category all by itself in terms of the of textual criticism and the bibliographical test. You know, it's fascinating that, you know, one of the things that's so fascinating about this too is that so many people were still alive when the letters to the churches, when the gospels were being written. Those people were alive to be able to validate that, yeah, in fact, what they're writing happened, say, that what they say happened actually did happen. And so we're not talking about this happening, getting the copies years and years after. Everybody's dead and nobody can really support this. That's fascinating to me. Now, F.F. Bruce was a, was a professor of New Testament. Oh, oh, wait, I almost forgot one. Forgive me. I almost leave him out. But uh, you guys remember Homer? Remember the, the Homer? So this is Homer. Not, not that Homer. This Homer. Um, so Homer wrote the Iliad. Um, the, this is the closest thing we have to the New Testament. Remember a Greek poet? You guys remember that? The Trojan War, written in 800 B.C., earliest copy, 400, time-lapse, 400. Now, this needs to be updated in your manual because I, I was doing a little more research, and I found they've discovered another 1,100 copies of the Iliad. So if you want to mark that down in your book, we've got a lot more copies of the Iliad, which are being, I think they're being sold out at Barnes & Nobles everywhere. But, um, but here's what F.F. Here's what Bruce said. F.F. Bruce was a professor of... New Testament criticism at the Victoria University of Manchester. He wrote several books. One of his books was called The New Testament Documents. Are they reliable? And this is what, this is what Dr. Bruce had to say. He says, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less well disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak willful manipulation of the facts, which would, be at once which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so. On the contrary, one of the strong points, catch this, one of the strong points in the original apostolic teaching, preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers they not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves know, had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. That's what I was saying a little bit earlier. There were a lot of eyewitnesses around that could have bunked, debunked all of this. So we see here there's a tremendous amount of historical leverage that makes us look at the Bible and say, this is worth reading, particularly when I've got 24,000 copies and they're accurate to that degree. 
And so what do we find in the Bible, One of the, particularly as it pertains to the person of Jesus, because that's the, to- the topic of the night. Who is Jesus? Well, we'll see here, and you'll see in your, uh, on page 14, that Jesus had a human body. He got tired, hungry. They got some scriptures there. Maybe you want to go home and grab your Bible and start finding those. He had human emotions, anger, love, sadness. Uh, he had human experiences. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He was obedient to his father. But here's the real question. This brings us really to the core of what we're talking about tonight. Was he more <clears throat> than just a man? Was he more than just a great human or just a religious teacher? Some would say he was, they'll give him the, bring him up to prophet. But let's talk about this. What did Jesus what was recorded that Jesus had to say about himself? Okay, I knew nothing about any of this because I didn't know what a Bible was. So when I started to open the Bible for the first time, this is like, where has this been all my life? I had no idea. But what did Jesus say about himself? And I want you to keep your pen out because I want us to just talk about this a little bit more tonight. Here's what, we, we talked about this scripture last week. John chapter 6, the Gospel of John, the 6th chapter, the 35th verse I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now again, here's this I am word. Remember last week, if you were here last week, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Jesus is making these statements about himself. He says, I am the bread of life. He's not, he's not saying he's a bakery. He's saying he gives you, he gives us sustenance that is greater than any physical food we can receive or any physical drink we can receive. So I want you to take next to that place in, uh, in the manual and just write this. He says he will fill our emptiness, okay? He will fill our emptiness. And by the way, if, if you're watching live stream tonight and you do not have uh, one of these study guides, just email me, uh, frank at lakeviewchristiancenter.com so we can mail these to you. We'd love for you to have those. So uh, take advantage of that, please. Um, so this is what he says. It, it, this may be a, a total fabrication, but this is what the Bible says he says. He fills the emptiness inside of us, inside of our soul, inside of our, our, our minds, our wills, our emotions. That's his statement. Let's look at John, the 8th chapter, the 12th verse. He says this. He doesn't say he's the bread here. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. They'll have me, and I am the light of the world. So what's he saying here, without me going too deeply into this? He's saying here that I will give your life direction and purpose. I will light up whatever darkness is in your heart, whatever darkness is in your soul. I will light up your life. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life, direction, meaning, purpose. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter, this is what Jesus says. And again, are you catching this? I am, I am. He says here, come to me, all you who are weary. Come to me, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. That sounds like a pretty good deal if it's true. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Okay, take my yoke. You know he's not talking about eggs here. You do know that, don't you? Okay, 
He's talking about weight. Okay, the, the, the picture here of, is of oxen together carrying a yoke, an oxen's yoke. Okay, but he's saying, take the, the burden that I have, which is light, and I want to give you mine. And I want you to give me yours. That's, that's his statement. That's what he's saying. He says, I will give you rest. Okay, you will find rest for your souls. Where? From him. What we learn from him. What is he saying here? The promise that he's making here, which is really quite a statement, that he himself will give you peace. He'll give you a sense of belonging. And he will give you a sense of, though at times you may be lonely, you will never be alone. That's what his promise is. Now, that's either true or false, but this is who the Bible purports who he is. Take it or leave it. At least you're learning what he's saying. Let's look at one more. John chapter 11, 25, his good friend Lazarus has just died, is what we have in this story here. And Jesus says to his friend Martha, says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her a question. Do you believe this? It's quite a question. So what, what Jesus is saying here is, he's not saying my teaching is the resurrection and the life. He's saying I am. He's focusing everything he says on himself as a person. I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me next week and the week after, we're really going to unpack that word. Okay? We really, I, if you only come next week and the week after, then I'll ask you to come the next week too. But, but I... <laughs> But I would love for you to, to just don't miss that. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Well, we know we're all going to die physically, right? In the dash, we're all going to die. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What is he talking about? What he's saying is, I lost my tape here. What he's saying here is, I'm making a fool of myself, yes. Um, is that even when you die... Your life goes on. You just go from dash life to line life is what happens. That's what he's saying. Your heart stops, but your life continues. Who, who believes in me shall never die. Question. You believe that? Okay, not, you didn't have to answer, but thank you. Um, do, do, do you, and again, this is, this is serious. Do you really believe that? Have you really thought about that? More than your cell phone policy. More than your fantasy football team. Have you really, really given this the credence that it deserves? Again, not asking you to believe this. But I had no idea that Jesus made these claims. I had no clue. I was just trying to be a good boy and stay out of trouble. So I could get from him what I wanted and not get from him what I didn't want. And then I opened the Bible. And my whole worldview was burnt up in just a matter of moments which I'm so grateful for. You see, Jesus' teaching centered on himself. Now, this is fascinating because we'll ask the question, well, what about other religions? Great question. Great question. Um, if any of you are asking that question. But here, here's, here's the deal. Um, if, if you look at Muhammad or Krishna or Buddha or Confucius or any other religious leader in the world, they were not saying to you or to their followers, I am the way, 
I am the truth. I am the life. They, they never pointed their teaching to themselves. They always pointed their teaching to their teaching. Okay? They said, don't believe me. Believe my dharma. Okay? That, you've heard of karma. Okay? But good works. Your dharma would be your, your theology, your rules. Look at, my, look at the rules. Follow the rules. I mean, the Buddha would say, no, no, no. Give me no thought whatsoever. Just follow the Eightfold Path of Enlightenment. Muhammad would not necessarily say, follow me. Follow my five pillars of faith and you'll be okay. See, Jesus says, oh no. I am the way. I am. And I'm going I'm to support that. I'm going to prove that to you. The question is, did, did he really prove that to us in some way or another? So Jesus' teaching centered on himself. In other words, you could take... All the religious leaders that have given us all the religions of the world. Now, I'm not saying that they are or aren't true, but this is, the, this is the truth. You can remove all of them from their teaching, and their teaching still stands. But if you remove Jesus from Christianity, you have nothing. Because all of his teaching centered on himself and what he purported about himself. And I think that's fascinating. So what are the, some of the other things? Did, did Jesus claim to be God? Well, there's, there are a couple of things real quickly that we're going to talk about right now. There's an indirect claim. Now, this is, if, if you want to make a note of this, maybe you'll talk about it at your table tonight. But in the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has just gone home, Capernaum. The town of Capernaum had become like the second home to Jesus and his disciples. That's where their home games were played, in Capernaum. And so, so Jesus is in this room, in this house, that's not very big, and people are packed everywhere into this house. I mean, there's no room to come in anymore and no room hardly to get out. Room is packed. Jesus is teaching. Well, there happens to be four guys on the outside that have a friend who's paralyzed. This is how the story goes. They want to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus and they don't want to wait because they don't know what's going to happen next. So they go up the stairs of the roof to the roof and they begin to pull away the, the roof shingles uh, in the roof. They're pulling away all the grass and everything else that was supporting that roof. And they lower this guy down in front of Jesus. Okay. I don't know how the lady of the house felt about that. But they lower this paralyzed guy down and they put him in front of Jesus. And Jesus says... To him, son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, now, now picture yourself right now. You are the paralyzed person. You have four friends that have just, like, how can you stop them? You can't stop them. You're paralyzed. You can't do anything about it. They tear away the roof. They lower you. That must have been scary. They lower him. That's faith. They lowered him down in front of Jesus everybody's looking at you. You are the center of attention. Now put yourself there, really. You're lying there paralyzed. Everybody's looking at you. You've interrupted the teacher's message of the evening. And he looks at you, all eyes on you, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, what are we all doing going? So, is it Wayne? So, so there's Wayne lowered there, and Jesus just forgives his sins. And, um, and what are you thinking? wonder what his sins are. 
I'd really like to know. I mean, if it's got him paralyzed here in this bed. Um, but so what's happening now, Jesus knows if what the scripture tells us is true, he knows exactly what's happening. And he knows there are religious leaders in that room that are hell-bent against Jesus becoming more popular than they, which really wouldn't have taken a whole lot. That's like becoming more popular than Congress. It doesn't take a whole lot for that to happen. But so the religious leaders are saying to themselves, who is this that forgives sins? No one can forgive sins but God. And then the Bible goes on to say this, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, what is easier, for me to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? And then he says this, but so that you may know K-N-O-W, so that you may know that the Son of Man, Son of Man was a title that Jesus had given to himself. We can see it in many other places in the scripture. So that you may know that the Son of Man has the power, has the authority to forgive sin. I say to you, and he pointed back at Wayne, (laughs) pointed back at that man and said, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the Bible says, maybe true, maybe a fable. He immediately got up and grabbed his bed and walked out of that place. Now, did Jesus claim to be God there? Did he make a statement saying, I am God? Not directly, but the religious leaders who knew the scripture knew exactly what he was saying. They knew to say your sins are forgiven is to make a claim that I and God are equal. In the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, I'll tell you one more real quickly. In the 8th chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is with the Pharisees. Those are the religious people, the scribes, the ver- those that were you know, lawyers. Not, you know, not lawyers like we think of lawyers today necessarily. They're lawyers in the law of Moses. That's what that's, what that's speaking of. And Jesus is having this conversation with them, and he says to them, Before Abraham was... Okay, Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham was, I could have been. He said before Abraham was, I am. Now that term, I am there, to those Jews, they knew exactly what he was saying. So if you go back to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis in the third chapter, Moses is having a conversation with God. God is telling Moses, hey, I'm sending you to set my people free from the Egyptians. And Moses is having a difficult time with this. And he says to, Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? In other words, what's the authority? What's the name, the the authority that I get to use? And And God said to Moses, say, I am that I am has sent you. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was, now Abraham lived about, oh, just about 2,100 years before Jesus. When Jesus says before Abraham was born, I am, the Bible says they picked up stones to stone him because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying. Jesus' claims were clear that he was making that statement that he was God. Well, let's just, let me just cut straight to the chase here. Um, 
if the Bible is to be believed, and even if it's not, but if the Bible is to be believed, um, Jesus either was or he was not God come in the flesh. He either was or he wasn't. So let's just think about this. We're going to use, uh, um, oh, I forgive me for, I got so excited about that, but on your John 11, eternal security with God. So let me just take you here. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, this is something called decision tree analysis, where you break things down into their simplest components to come up with a reasonable answer. He claimed to be God, so he either was or he wasn't. It's either false or it's true, right? I mean, that, that, that's pretty simple. Well, what if it were false? What if, it, what if it's not? Well, then he either knew he wasn't or he didn't know he wasn't. He, he may have thought he was. Well, let's say he knew that he was, a, was not telling the truth. Then, then he was a liar. It's as simple as that. If you know something is not true, but you purport it to be true, you're lying. Well, if he was a liar, he's also a hypocrite because he's teaching the truth. He's saying, truly, truly, I say to you this. Truly, truly, I say to you that. I tell you the truth. I'm the way, the truth. But he's a hypocrite because everything he says is true is not true at all. You're a hypocrite. You're a liar. Not only is that, he's a demon because not only is he saying, hey, you know what? I will be your peace in I'm just going to forget him for tonight. I will be your peace in the dash. And I will be with you forever on the other side of your last heartbeat. It's a lie. He's deceived you. It's not true. See, so he's a liar. He's a hypocrite. He's a demon. But not only that, biggest of all, he's a fool. He's an absolute fool. Why? Because he's going to die for that which is a lie and he knows it. Well, maybe he didn't know it. You know, maybe, you know, maybe he just thought he was, but he wasn't. You know, maybe, you know, but if he didn't know it, what was he? He's a nut. He's a fruitcake. He, he thought he was who he wasn't. But here's the thing. When we look at the scriptures, when we look at history, when we look at the, Jesus and the company he kept, the people he, st he stood in front of, some of the most brilliant religious Figures in the world, in Judaism, he stood between, before the most powerful army on earth. And we see nothing but clarity. We see nothing but fearlessness. He's with his disciples for three years. See, we see a man that is consistent in all of his ways. Even those who are antagonistic toward Christianity, of whom there are many philosophers, say... There, I may not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I cannot believe that he is a lunatic. If he's a lunatic, well, he just was sincerely deluded. He thought he was someone that he was not. Now, I wanted, on page 16, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and I want us to look at this. Because remember, Lewis we brought him up last week. Atheist became theist. In other words, he believed that there was a God, but he didn't know who he was. And then he became a follower of Christ. Now, let me just, this is what Lewis has to say in this context. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
Okay, you got that? A lot of people say, well, I just believe Jesus was a great moral teacher. But if you say the kind of things Jesus said, you would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess that would be a deviled egg. I'm not sure. But, um, so you must, make your, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Fascinating. So... Was he lying? Was he a lunatic? Or was he Lord? And is he Lord? Well, if he is, if he truly is God come in the flesh, then that brings me to have to make a decision to either reject his claim or accept his claim. And I can reject his claim either passively or aggressively. I can say, go away, or I can keep my mouth shut and just be very passive. I can just go to church and do my deal, but I've never really acknowledged that he is Lord. That's where I was. See, is there evidence to support that? So, what are the evidences that would support Jesus' claims? Well, there are many. There are many. Um, his teachings, his miracles, his character, uh, Hebrew scripture prophecy, Old Testament prophecy, so many hundreds of prophecies. We'll talk about this in, in week five. Um, those are pieces of evidence. But Christianity, faith in Christ, rises and falls on one piece of evidence, one bit of evidence. Did Jesus come out of the tomb alive on that first Easter morning? If not, Christianity is a farce. Christianity is not to be believed. You're familiar, I'm sure, if you've, uh, you've gone to church at all or read the Bible at all or been experienced any thing of biblical topics of the, the Apostle Paul. Um, well, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was the Pharisee Saul. He was an antagonist of Christianity. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was a murderer of Christians. And he had an encounter with Jesus that completely changed his life to where he became the man who by the power of the Spirit of God, wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. Um, and I want to write what this antagonist wrote about Christianity. And this is what he says to a church in a little town called Corinth in Greece. He's saying, look, I, this is the very end of the book. He says, for I delivered to you as of... Now, I thought a lot of words here, I'm sorry. First importance. Okay, if something is of first importance, that means it's of 
first importance. You got that? It's, it's just incredibly important. I write to you as first importance. What I also received, and here it is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. Then to the 12, the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Look at this. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. That, that doesn't mean they, they took a nap. That means they died. That's a kind of a biblical terminology for believers who die, whose hearts have stopped. Okay. But here's what Paul goes on to write as well. So he makes that profession. Well, here's what he is saying here. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Do you see what Paul's saying here, how important this issue of resurrection is? See, Muhammad didn't rise from the dead. Buddha didn't. Krishna didn't. Confucius didn't. They, and they didn't claim to either. They didn't say that they were. But there is one who said he was. And all of his teaching and everything about Christianity hinges on this one thing. Is he still food for the worms? Or was he in fact resurrected from the dead? That's how serious this is. And then Paul goes on to say this to the Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. There's no forgiveness. You're looking for Christ, his dying on the cross to forgive you your sins. You're a fool. If only in this life, if only in the dash, if only in the dash, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's pretty serious. Christianity is to be run from, not to be embraced. But if Christ is raised from the dead, as he said he would be, then that piece of evidence supports and I think builds the whole edifice of what Christianity is, the foundation of what Christianity is. Again, I'm, whether you believe that or not, that's between you and God if there is one, and Christ if he is resurrected. That's between you two. Um, but these statements, as I said, are just too important to leave to church attendance and check in the box on a Sunday morning. Okay? Or prayers at night and not saying, you know what? My life is wrapped up in this one who was resurrected from the dead. Not just a little spiritual part of my life and then the rest of my life. My whole life is consumed by this one who says he was consumed by death for me. He tasted death for us so that we would not have to. That was his claim. And you know, many have tried to explain away the resurrection. That's page 17 in our, in our notes. Many have tried to explain away the resurrection. And, and they've had a difficult time doing that um, because the biggest problem is this. Most, even antagonists, 
have a problem with this. Where is the body? Okay, habeas corpus. Where is the body? Where was it? Well, here are basically the arguments that are given. One, you may want to write, I think they're actually they're in our book. Um, the women went to the wrong tomb. So we know if you've read any of the Gospels, at the end of the Gospels, Christ is crucified very early in the morning. The women went to the tomb. Well, what happened was they went to the wrong tomb. Okay? They went to the wrong tomb. They got the wrong address. They went to the wrong tomb. And uh, they went running back to the disciples. Well, if that would have been the case, somebody would have just done what? Pointed out where the tomb actually is. I mean, this is, even I, an LSU graduate, can get this. I got that. Um, okay, so women went to the wrong tomb? I don't think so. How about this? this you know what it was? The disciples, in their zeal, stole the body. Well, we don't see that because what happens when Christ is apprehended by those who went to crucify him? <laughs> see ya? I mean, they were gone. They spread. Um, but if they, if they, they stole the body, or rather, if they were accused of stealing the body, but didn't steal the body, um, it seems pretty difficult to believe that they would die for a lie. They died purporting that Jesus was the risen Son of God, knowing full well they had his body stashed in the basement. Look, people will believe, will die for a lie believing it's true. But I don't know many people are going to die for a lie knowing it's a lie. Uh, the Jewish officials, maybe the Jewish officials stole the body. They were concerned about the disciples stealing the body, so they stole the body. That's what happened. They, just stole, they stole the body. Well, here's the thing. If they did steal the body, if they took the body, and the disciples start going, Hallelujah, Christ is risen. They're going to go, uh... We thought you were going to do that. And they present the body. That's what they do. Um, well, you know what it was? Um, he really wasn't resurrected. Just people hallucinated that he was resurrected. Well, I mean, I just read you a minute ago. He, he, he appeared to, to uh, Cephas, and then he appeared to the 12, then he appeared to 500. 500 people do not hallucinate. At the same time, the same thing. It just, it just doesn't. It's just not happening. I mean, people are grasping at straws. Uh, and the fifth one is that he swooned. He really didn't die. Okay? He really didn't die. They just pulled him down prematurely. They wrapped his body in cloths. They put him in uh, Joseph's tomb. And he resuscitated by the cool air in the tomb. Um, if you're at all familiar with the agonies of crucifixion, Nobody survives crucifixion. No one survives crucifixion. It just doesn't happen. And I don't have the time to go through all the details tonight, but we do have um, for you tonight. Uh, in the American Medical Association uh, Journal, um, some doctors put forth for publication an article several years ago called On the Physical Death of Jesus. This goes through everything that takes place in crucifixion. Nobody survives crucifixion. It doesn't happen. But it just becomes another way of attempting to explain away the resurrection of Jesus 
Christ. So if you'd like that, if you guys are watching online tonight and you want to copy this, I can send you electronically this. Just, again, send me an email, frank at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. I will be happy to get you that copy electronically. But as I said, many have tried to explain away um, the, the resurrection of Christ. We've talked about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity. Okay? He called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England because he looked at the facts, he looked at his life, he looked at Christ, and he said he must be Lord. He is not liar, lunatic. And this man became one of the most powerful voices for Christ in the 20th century. Um, I, Josh McDowell uh, was another person. He was, when he was at, in college, he was challenged. You don't believe in this stuff? Then prove it wrong. And so Josh McDowell went to prove everybody wrong. And Josh McDowell has spoken to millions of students and others, professionals all over the world and has written books about as tall as I am. And this is his Cliff Notes called More Than a Carpenter. And we've got a copy for you guys tonight. If you'd like a copy of this book, we don't have a lot of copies, but this is a fascinating book. You'll get some of the stuff that I spoke about tonight from that. Um, one of my favorite books is uh, this book by Frank Morrison called Who Moved the Stone? And um, I love, I love the, um, the first chapter of this book. Um, can, can you read that? Can you see it? It's, it says, the book that refused to be written. Frank Morrison set out to debunk Christianity with everything that was in him. And the more evidence he strove to get, the more his position crumbled. And Frank Morrison, a British journalist, became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean it's true. That's something that you and God have to deal with yourselves. Um, you know, the question that is echoed really through the canyons of time um, and what has come into every one of our hearing tonight is the question of the resurrection of Jesus and who he is. Um, and I would argue that that would be the question that Jesus would put forth to each of us tonight. I want, I, I want to, I'm going to close with this. I've got to close with this because I'm out of time. There's that. I was going to show you that, but Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he asks them this. He says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They know they're speak that he's speaking of himself. And they replied, some say John, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, another prophet. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, so they're having this conversation. Who do people say that I am? That's what people say that I am. But here's what Jesus then says. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And as I said, that question echoes through the canyons of history right into this room tonight. Not who does your grandmother say he is. Not who your mom or dad or your next door neighbor say he is. Or your religion teacher says he is. Who do you say he is? 
Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And he who believes in me shall live and never die. Do you believe this? It's a pretty serious question. And we're going to get so much more into this over the weeks. But tonight, when you're lying in bed, staring at the ceiling, you can't get to sleep because you're so excited about being here tonight. Um, who do you say that I am? Hear him asking you that question. Who do you say that I am and what does that mean to you? So what are the ramifications for you and me? Really, are there any? If Jesus actually did not stay in that tomb and was resurrected, what's it mean to me? What does the person of Jesus really have to do with me in my life? Have I possibly not critically examined who he is and what it means if he is resurrected? Now, the topic we're going to go through next week is, <clears throat> why did Jesus die? Do not miss next week, please. Uh, this topic is one that I knew nothing of, really. I could have given you some superficial answer, but I really did not know to the core why Jesus had to die. I was surprised by the answer, and maybe you will be too. So... I'm going to stop with that. Thank you guys for being here. We got coffee over here. For those of you who like to grab some more coffee, we'll take a quick break. Let's get back to our tables as quickly as we can, and then we'll have some conversation among us, okay? Thank you for being here. Hope to see you next week. Hope to see you watching us next week. And still, feel free to bring friends with you.